Hey, welcome back to Mobile First. I'm your host, Jordan Bryant. Every week, I sit down with industry leaders to unlock how they are creating effective mobile experiences that make an impact for their businesses so that you can understand the perspective and tactics to replicate their success. If you're new to the show, Mobile First is the media child of Emerge Interactive, a digital experience company with two decades of creating highly performing digital products out of Portland, Oregon. We believe that every digital product owner deserves a clear vision, plan of action, and the right capabilities to create effective digital experiences that help to increase sales and performance. This week on Emerge Mobile First, a conversation with Jason Wolf, Global Head of Experience Design at Infosys. Jason is the Global Head of Experience Design for Infosys. He's worked with Steve Jobs as a producer on the Apple Think Different campaign. He also has worked with Bill Gates, Hasso Plattner, and Vishal Sikka. He was the practice lead at IDEO. Jason authored the first books on Shockwave technology. He's a big proponent of design thinking and is a strategist and innovation change agent. Well, I've worked with Steve Jobs and I've been in the room with Bill Gates and Hasso Flattner was my boss, the founder of SAP. And those people are dying for reality. And they are literally dying for people to come up to them and call bullshit on them. Jason, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to have you here. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So before diving into the insights, I like to spend just a little time understanding your perspective and what inspires you, because I think this really helps to provide some context when digging a little bit deeper throughout the episode. So Jason, what are you most passionate about in your profession and why? I'd have to say that anything from the creative aspect of art is what really inspires me. I draw a lot of my inspiration from films, from televisions, from books, from other authors, from websites, just anything out there from the abstract to the total tangible. I love to consume that and try and make sense of it and use it in my everyday work to kind of give people things they've never seen before and to kind of make their lives more interesting. You have a really cool and interesting history and, and journey that got you to where you are today and back to when you were 16 and ran your own uh, business, right, where you were installing TVs and stereos. So I'm, yeah. I'm curious, what about your journey, about your experiences created this, this passion of yours? I can't actually put my finger on something in my real life that put, that caused this, but I do know that art has always been something that has interested me, whether it was doodling or scribbling at six years old, to trying watercolors, to trying painting. And what I found was that the reaction that I would get from another human by creating something or making something or doing something was what I was most interested in. Seeing people smile or seeing people say, oh, that's horrible, or wow, I love that, or I've never seen that before. I think that's what's actually motivating me more than anything else. Interesting. So is the inspiring others and eliciting a, a positive reaction, change, a change of their mindset. Yep. Really cool. Really cool. And in our pre-chat, you mentioned that in the, in the 90s, there was this transformation that took place, you know, where it all hits you. 
this design thinking, but then it wasn't till 2004 that, that came the actual design thinking when joining IDO. So with this transformation that took place when it all hit you, what's happening when design, can you explain that a little bit? Can we explore that? I was sitting in a cubicle with uh, rows and rows of people in all directions. And I'm realizing that there was probably 500 employees at the time I was working for Macromedia. And I realized how unconnected every single one of us was, yet all of us had the same mission. And I remember no one ever emailed except for the CEO or the chief marketing officer. And no one ever chatted about work very much. It was all play when we actually saw each other. And so I, I kind of kept thinking to myself, if this was my company, how would all of these people know what it is that they're supposed to be doing? How, how do they interact with each other? And how do they make the products great? And how do we have any idea what the customer is actually thinking? Because no one was talking to them. We weren't hearing anything. And, and so... I mean, luckily, Macromedia was a very successful company. They created Flash and Director and a program called Freehand. And that was just because the products were cool. But at the time, I think the essence of this thing that we now know is called design thinking, people were really questioning, like, how do we innovate? How do we find out if customers are interested in all the stuff we're doing when we're sitting in this cubicle for months and months on end? And what allowed you to make that, to, to step back and to see that? Because you have all these people that are on, on this assembly line that are doing this thing in their cubicle. But what allowed you to, to have that perspective and call out that you know, it wasn't conducive to that creative product? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great question because the reality was I was in no position to stand up to the CEO and say, you know what? You're an idiot. <laughs> because that's not the case. You as a young person believe that, gosh, if they would just listen to me, gosh, if they would just, you know, take my idea. And the difficulty is that how do I become expressive and how do I show that I am a valuable entity too in this organization? And it really is a complex thing because you want to become the person who kind of gives the orders, but you don't necessarily have all the right answers when you are that person. So you find that as kind of time goes on and you become more humble and you become more understanding of, oh, I used to have that job 10 years ago where there was somebody sitting in a cubicle. I would find myself when I was working at CKS Partners, which became later became a company called March 1st. I used to walk around to the cubicles of literally new hired employees and say, hey, I'm Jason Wolf. I am the head of research and development. And I, I just wondering, what do you think of our company? Have you seen some of our clients? Like, what kind of ideas? Like, do you want to have lunch? And because I knew that those people, they know their shit and they were hired for a specific reason. And that specific reason was a skill set. And that skill set comes with a lot of domain expertise. So I would give them that opportunity to voice themselves. And what it led to was they would then come back to me and feel comfortable voicing that over and over unsolicited. So it was kind of creating accidentally creating a culture where everyone is on a level playing field. 
And that's really what's the key is that feeling like and creating a level playing field. You know, I think a lot of people can relate to that where they feel like they have a really interesting perspective, but maybe they're not in a position where they feel like they can say anything because they don't really want to jeopardize, you know, their role, their position at the company. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can, I can comment on that because honestly, I have been in so many organizations where I have been very close to very high level people. I've worked with Steve Jobs and I've been in the room with Bill Gates and Hasso Plattner was my boss, the founder of SAP. And those people are dying for reality. And they are literally dying for people to come up to them and call bullshit on them and say, look, Steve, Steve, this is a horrible idea. And here's why. Because what you end up with is a bunch of people that surround you completely kissing your ass. Just saying, oh, Steve, I love that. Oh, Steve, let me get you this. Oh, Steve, that's a beautiful day. Oh, Steve, that's great. And if you don't really believe it and you kind of just make them feel like it's great, you go home at the end of the day and you say things like, he's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He should have listened to me. Well, they want that information and you just kind of have to take that first step and just in a diplomatic and politically correct way, just raise your hand and say, you know what, I have, a, I have a question about this because here's what I think. And what about this? And, you know, just start to voice your opinion and who you are. And obviously you don't raise your hand and call bullshit and cause a lot of chaos because you're all supposed to play nice. But that those people, those people that come up and say, let me help out or let me give you some direction or let me give you some valuable feed. Those are the people that I ended up being closest to throughout my career. In the previous episode before this, Linda Tong, the VP of Innovation Labs at Dynamics, she talks about these think factories and with you know this, this conversation of maybe not knowing how they can stand up or not feeling comfortable with how they can stand up with just ideas that can help facilitate this. I think that that's a, this, this idea of a think factory and processes that will allow people to stand up and voice their opinion. I'm excited to a little bit further along in this episode, you know, try to unlock some of these, these things that you've done that have helped you. And as also a leader of, of teams that facilitate this, but before, you know, getting into that, I think that what shapes these perspectives is really important. And being that you're, head of experience design, um, wanting to understand, you know, what about your background has created your perspective and the approach that you take to your job now. And, and as an example, I come from a medical background, medical biology background, and I studied that for six years through college. And it's allowed me to have a unique perspective in that I see business as a complex, interdependent living organism, right? And being a scientist, I can I can set up and run experiments effectively that, that make an impact. And so f- what about your experience that's a little bit different that leads to what you're able to do now with your perspective? The truth of it is this, is that organizations can be set up like machines where you have cogs and gears and people and parts and chemicals and reactions. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that there's a spirit to the organization. And the spirit is something that you don't really control. It just kind of comes out based on the multiplication of all the number of people that are kind of filling that organization. And it's 
energy. It's this kind of dynamic that is kind of imbued and grows through the organization that actually starts to really define what the organization becomes. If you think of it as simple as a plant growing from a seed, there's something about that particular seed that when it's, when it's nurtured and watered and grows, it becomes a certain type of plant. And another seed that looks almost identical, treated in a different way, could grow completely differently. And so this type of energy is a very new prospect. And, it, it, and I get it. It's a very fluffy prospect because it's not mechanized. It's very cerebral, for one thing. You're kind of thinking about a concept that has no visual or tangible thing that you can hold. There's almost no metric around it. But you can look and walk around your company and see, is it colorful? Literally, is it colorful? Like, is, is it, do you see reds and blues and greens and yellows scattered around the building? Or do you see two colors, gray, black, maybe chrome? You know, you can start with your environment and you can modify your environment in a way that makes people happy. And I can give you a a tangible example instead of just what I'm talking about here is when I worked at SAP, I was told that we want to change the culture of the company. So I did this while sitting in a cubicle with 20, 30 other design thinkers that had an incredibly diverse background from zoology to electrical engineering all over the place. We had one person that was a a Myers-Briggs certified test giver who would Myers-Briggs everyone and then kind of thought, let's try and rearrange our desks based on that or the Enneagram, if any of you have heard of this. And so so one day it hit us. Wait, wait, wait. If we're going to change the culture of this company, the culture of the company starts with the environment and the environment that we're all sitting in right now, it sucks. It's gray cubicles. It was literally, we had a day like the scene in office space where we just unscrewed our cubicles and knocked these walls down, told facilities, can you haul all this stuff away? We got wheels on all of our desks, wheels on our chairs. We got rolling filing cabinets and we would just move stuff around on the project. And I would say, hey, you know, every day I'm sitting with you. I think I'm just going to roll my desk over here. Is that cool? And people are like, uh, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so it went further one day where I got this idea. The, the SAP logo was a big blue chevron. So I painted it on my wall behind my desk. It was 10 feet high, 10 feet wide. And the color, I think, was it was a Disney color. It was something like, you know, Mickey Mouse blue or, oh, no, it was like from... Gosh, I, you know, Buzz Lightyear, his comment from Pixar, I can't remember. He's like, to infinity and beyond, that was the name of the color. Mm-hmm. So that happened to match the SAP blue perfectly. And all of a sudden, C-level executives were coming and going right in front of that thing, looking at it, nodding their heads, writing stuff down on paper. And my manager comes over and says, so you, you paint the wall? When did you do that? <laughs> so I painted it on Saturday. Wow. You know, I, I love it, man. I love it. I love it. There's a lot of people that are kind of like walking around here saying, you know, who, who did this, who let him do that. And I just tell him, well, you know, he, he's creating his own space. So I thought, cool. I, I kind of got the, okay. And I went and pulled my filing cabinet the next weekend outside and I spray painted it orange, like day glow <laughs> orange. And I moved it back in there and I set it next to this blue and all hell broke loose, right? So he's gone too far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Designers that I worked with would come over and stare at it 
And I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, I just love that color. It is so cool. And all the other filing cabinets everywhere in the office were, were gray. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I just, I just took it outside on Saturday and I spray painted it. So then management comes, they look at it, they nod their head. They're doing the whole thing, sending me an email like, did you get permission from facilities? And I'm like, nope, nope, nada, didn't, nothing. This is just where I want to work and this makes me happy. So they finally just came down and said, look, we had to buy that filing cabinet from facilities for $300. So don't paint any like furniture. That's, that's just all we want to like, that's all we want to say to you. But that snowballed. And I tell you now, if you literally go to the SAP campus in Palo Alto today, because this was, you know, this was 2005, that campus looks like my cubicle. There are multicolored walls of orange and green and blue. And there's, there was one guy I worked with who built this gigantic origami structure that was hanging. We started having cubicle contests, you know, and people were building pyramids and we were creating the space that you were happy in when you weren't at work. And that was super important because most of us started realizing that like we're sitting in a stupid, funky, round conference room with all these funky things hanging around. Then you somebody go, whoa, you guys, I have this idea. Like, what if we do this for the project? We started innovating better. We started being happier. We started laughing about things and joking about our environment. And it totally spawned a comfortable, creative kind of almost, I hate to say it, almost like when you take a shower and you're just spaced out, you know, we had that environment and SAP kind of looks like that today. I know a lot of people are listening in and they just feel the energy. I like, I want to go spray paint something right now. And so, you know, (laughs) one of the first things we talked about is, is that there, a lot of people don't want to take that risk. And I think that I know your response is going to be just do it. You got to jump in. You got to, you got to take that chance. You know, how do you advise people try something that they, you know, take this yeah. first step, they disrupt that environment? Totally. And I, honestly, I, I look at a career as three phases. When you first join a company, when you're cruising along on cruise control, and when you think like, I'm kind of winding down with this company. And there is a point when I was younger when I started thinking, I'm not going to stay with this company much longer, whichever one, you know, Macromedia or Lucasfilm Games. And, and I started being more of a rebel. I started doing some of that stuff where I would either paint a wall or put something up or rearrange furniture. I was sliding things around and just approving wacky things. Like, did you approve this? I'm like, I did. I told them they could buy that. <laughs> Two things would happen. One, it would accelerate my path out the door of the company that I already felt like I was leaving. And then it was just validating. Yeah, that wasn't the right place for me. Or two, people will turn around and go, damn, this is cool. Like you're promoted. (laughs) (laughs) And then you realize, you realize like I should have been expressing myself from the get go. And now it all also has a lot to do with the management, right? The person that you work with. Because if somebody came to me and said, hey, I want to spray paint my desk, what do you think? I'd be like, go for it. I'll buy you the paint. And I wouldn't even ask permission. And if somebody went to a different manager, even in my same company, and they were like, hey, I want to spray paint my desk, they would literally run like a risk assessment program for 30 days. You know, (laughs) like, let's analyze the risk. You know, 22 people will be involved in an email chain. And it would come back down to then just being like, well, we can't do that, but you could cover it with colored paper, you know, and, and then you're like, this is not where I should be working. 
So you kind of have to feel out the environment that you're in and explore their receptiveness to that. But honestly, there is no company that does not want to be innovative. And when they understand the reasoning behind the first couple steps that you're taking, that's the key. And if you can show that, which you can, IDEO, you can go to their design kit online. You can take design thinking courses on lynda.com. And if you can articulate what it is that the reason for changing the environment or the reason for talking back or the reason for asking what's called the five why, which is the question that your three-year-old asks you, why, 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 why? But if you do that, if you do that in a corporate environment on a program or a project that you're working on, you will be amazed at how most programs, people have no clue why they're doing something. Mm -hmm. So Jim, I need you to work on this project. Okay. Uh, and what we need you to do is paint this or color that or do this. And, and you're like, okay, well, can I ask why? And they're like, well, you know, uh, Steve told me, you know, okay, let's talk to him. Well, what, why do we need this? Well, because we're having a show come up. Okay. Well, why are we having the show or when is the show? You kind of dig down further. Then you find out mm -hmm. like, you guys, this should be t-shirts. This should be a t-shirt, <laughs> not a, you know, like, and, and, and everyone in that chain was just acting the same way you were. Mm -hmm. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, the guy at the top, when you make a T-shirt, he says, I want to recognize so-and-so down there for making those T-shirts. That was a brilliant idea of his. You know, and you're like, oh, shit. Like, there we go. That's the true, like, spirit of who I am and this company really is supposed to be. And and to his credit, that was Hasso Plattner. I don't, there's probably not a lot of people out there who know this guy, but he was an executive at IBM in the 70s. This was during the time when, when you patented something at company, you own the patent. So mm -hmm. today I have, I have probably like eight or nine patents and all of them are owned by Microsoft or SAP. Well, Hasso Plattner owns personally the patent to the animated by bar chart, right? So anytime you see a bar chart and it moves up and down or animates, sorry, animated pie chart, he gets money, right? So he created this concept at IBM. And then I think building the machines, he realized we need software that businesses can run on these machines. And he went off and started SAP. And I remember sitting down with him once. Now this guy is, he's one of the wealthiest people in the world. And it's incredibly difficult to relate to him. He's kind of like in the Bill Gates category where you sit down and you, you order a cheeseburger and a Coke. And he starts talking about how his $65 million plane can't land because it doesn't have infrared cameras. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? And you're like, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, right? Like, like I just had trouble getting here on the bus, right? And so mm -hmm. he's a normal human who realized that when SAP started, they didn't have an office. They went and lived with their core people at different company sites. And they, they were like, we camped there. We talked to them. We worked with them. We eventually got so big, we got an office and another one and another one and another one. And he started feeling like we're losing touch with our customers. So now... He, 2003, 2004, he said, I want to, I want to get this back. I want to get the spirit back. I want to get this company back. And there's a person at SAP right now. He's the chief creative officer of the company. It's the first chief creative officer of the company named. And he was a peer of mine. His name is Sam Yen and fantastic guy who embodied design thinking works both at Stanford teaching classes on design thinking became the chief creative officer, was was in the team I was in for design services team. And now if you walk around there, the place 
just is alive. It feels kind of like, I hate to say this, it feels like a preschool, almost like a Montessori school where you turn the corner and you just laugh at something that somebody put up in the corner, like a, a giant plastic plant or these blow up inflatable chairs. And they really have it now. If you want tangible results, you can just look at their stock price over like the last five years. It's like doubled. And it's it's a direct reflection of seeing and helping their customers achieve what they want with their products instead of just burying their head in the sand and saying what most companies say. I know what the customer wants better than what the customer wants. I think to sum up a lot of these amazing stories, Jason, is that the the way that you're approaching this design thinking, or really what design thinking is, it's understanding that there are deeper root causes than to the symptomatic things that are taking place and being able to ask why and understand deeper to drill to those root things. So beyond just the performance of the product, what is the person that's enabling the product? What is the environment that's uh, allowing that person to be creative to create that product and just really drilling down to, to these different things that can be controlled that can then lead to a, these effective outcomes. And with the momentum that we have and your philosophy with creating these disruptive design thinking, you know, how are you taking this to emphasis? What are some of the, the core things that you're focused on right now or, or that you're seeing that are really beneficial because of this disruptive design thinking? Yeah, that's a good question because personally, I just embody design thinking and how you really know that design thinking is part of you is when you're not at work and you're still design thinking, in quotes, the world. You know, it, it's just as funny as walk into a restaurant and it says push or pull and there's no handle. And you're like, who designed this? You know, <laughs> your your brain starts locking into this mentality of everything in the world that's not from nature is designed by a human. And therefore, there can be a lot of flaws in the design of the world that you start to see. It's, it's akin to the movie, The Matrix, where you just start seeing The Matrix, where you're like, this is a horrible way that someone positioned this or put this thing here. So the best way, again, going back to the energy and the spirit of a company to change it or to help it change is to be it, right? So you embody and imbue that energy within yourself to the, peop the two people next to you who do it to the next two people next to them and so on. That's one way. The second is, if you're lucky, your management, or in my case, our CEO, mandated it, said design thinking as a cultural initiative in this company is number one. So, you know, I think in two years, something like 60 to 90,000 Infosys employees have gone through design thinking process training. And at the very least, it gives every one of us a vocabulary to communicate with that helps us understand what it is that's really, really important and how to extract that really important essence from either ourselves or our, our work or our customer. And the cool thing is, if you're lucky and your CEO or your manager mandates this, you can walk into a room and say to people, look, let's get to the heart of this by doing a design exercise, like a deep dive or 
uh, let's do some personas or some role playing or some decisions and go through some pain points. And, and you, you run into people who aren't used to that process and say things like, no, 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 you know what? Market research shows, blah, blah, blah. And we already know what we want. So let's just get to work. And you can, you can pull the CEO card. You can be like, that's not what our CEO wants us to do. Like we really need to kind of uncover this. And this is the process. We should follow this. Let's, can we just give it a try? And right there, that's a conflict. And that's, that's something that becomes easier to deal with as you mature more. You know, when I was 25 years old, I would have just been like, okay, no problem to whoever I was in front of. When mm-hmm. I was 35, you know, you, you kind of have enough confidence of who you are and what you do and, and you can have those conversations. If that makes any sense, I'm, tr- I'm trying to just live that path, you know, and, and imbue that into the company by being that myself. And so as that leader, you know, what are some of the things that you're focused on in creating within emphasis right now? There's a couple ways that you can you can think of it. The approach is kind of I am what's called like a T-shaped individual. And, you know, for a while, this used to be an industry kind of buzzword where we would want to hire T-shaped employees. And what it meant is that you have a very, very deep vertical into one particular subject, but you have this horizontal of kind of jack of all trades of either knowledge or abilities. And with me, I kind of have this ability to walk into any domain, whether it's banking, engineering, VR, visual effects, marketing, and speak the design thinking language to them. Mm-hmm. And so if I go into a marketing person and say, I know you got brandings and campaigns and you got media buys and all that kind of stuff, but can I, let me just ask you one question. Why? And who is your audience? Do you know who you're speaking to? And these, those kind of questions are design thinking questions and they still apply in the, in the marketing world. So once we identify pain points, personas, then we go into things like ideate and prototype and test these things. It all works in the marketing world, but guess what? It also works with an engineer. So I I'll say things to an engineer like, well, have you guys done any interviewing or shadowing of people that you're writing all this code for and, why don't we do a couple prototypes and and it works there too. I'll specifically work with just different divisions. One that is either mandated to me, meaning my boss has said, Hey, will you go over there and help these guys? Or two that I have been working with for a long time. You know, that since I've been there, I've been working with five, six, seven different divisions in the company. And I just kind of keep cycling through and, or there's emergencies. People will bring up a project and say, hey, this thing is pretty crappy right now. And what do you think we should do? And I'll run through design thinking methods. But you know what? What happens and when you know that it's working is that when I go to check in on some of these different divisions, I'll poke my head in having not been there for like 30 days. And they're in the middle of a design thinking exercise. (laughs) You know, I'm like, (laughs) oh, hey, what are you guys doing? They're like, we're ideating on some projects right now. Like, uh, you, you want to jump in? And I'm like, oh, like, shit, it's working. Like, these people have seen the benefit, extracted it themselves, and are applying it to their own kind of projects. And that's where it gets really fun because then what I'm doing is I'm helping them with the process of innovation. I'm leading them through the design thinking process and helping them extract nuggets. And 
sometimes, you know, playing referee where you're like, you hear somebody in the room go, well, we, you know, we can't really do that. That's going to be way too expensive. And you're like, that doesn't really matter right now. This is not the feasibility phase, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you run into a problem with the time investment into doing these, these sort of workshops? Because I can, maybe there's some of the listeners that are in here like, oh, well, I'd love to take the time to do that. And I would, I would love to pull some additional resources in there, but how do I justify the, the cost of that to my higher up? Yeah. I mean, just like anything in the world, it's a fractal. Okay. So I could teach one human the design thinking process in 60 seconds. I could say, look, you got to empathize with another human. You got to define their problem. You got to ideate a couple versions of it. You got to build a little prototype that they can physically see and play with, and you got to test it with them. And you got to repeat that until they're happy or you're happy. And right there, people are like, oh, shit, that's amazing. Let's try that. But what really happens is when you get into a complex organization, say like where you're working with Boeing on the creation of a jet engine that you're trying to prevent it from vibrating, there's a million little factors because empathizing no longer means you're just asking one person, like, how do you like this new thing I call a spork? You're trying to figure out variables on blades and, and source code and all the stakeholders involved. Well, the CEO really wants us to do that. And the, the facilities guy says that the building is not big enough and you, you're kind of balancing out a lot more. And so the workshops can be anywhere from one minute long to one week long. And what I like to do is I like to just kind of give people the information in these kind of absorbable nuggets. So the first thing is you, you think of it as like, here's a PDF of the design thinking process. After that, here's a video of the design thinking process. After that, why don't you come to the one-day workshop? And after that, you're like, why don't you come to our three-day workshop? And then, then it's like, why don't you try a project with it now? And while you're doing that project, reach out to me as a resource when you're stuck on one of the phases. Like, if you don't understand how to ideate, just call me. If you're stuck on defining or prototyping, just call me. And then they finish the project, they become successful, and then you convert them. You say, how about you become a design thinking teacher in the company? Like, you could be one of our facilitators and moderators. So every once in a while, when we need somebody in Texas or in New York, you could be the person who, like, runs a one-day workshop for them. You just kind of dub everyone. And it snowballs. All of a sudden, you've got people all over the company, and you start seeing materials and white papers and documents popping up on the internet that other people are publishing about that topic. And stuff starts happening. You know, you just see it working and moving. I got it. So we have these different entry points to make it really easy for people, whatever level yeah. they're at. Got it. And then you run that through just the lean method approach, build, measure, learn, measure to make sure that it actually is getting to the outcome and then continue to do what works and get rid of what's not working. When I was a little boy, my grandfather was a well driller and he lived in a tiny small town. He had his own small business and he used to tell me, he's like, I want everyone to vote for this new mayor or this, you know, this governor because it's going to be good for my business. And he'd say, I want to go around and have the signs stuck in people's yards that would say, vote for so-and-so. And he told me, he's like, no one wants these signs in their yard. Even if it's their own political belief, you find one or two people that are like, sure, stick that big ass sign in my yard. <laughs> he goes, but I'll teach you how 
that you can put it in anyone's yard. I'm like, okay. He'd walk up to their house and he'd have a little like business card. And it would be the literally like the size of a postcard or a business card. And it would say, vote for so-and-so, vote for Pedro. You know, it didn't matter. And he would say, hey, do you mind, you know, first he'd find their political affiliation. Like if they weren't affiliated with him, he, he would just walk away. But if it was like, oh, do you mind if I take this little card and I put it right here in your window? And most of the people, if they were in resonance with him, would be like, absolutely, that's fine. That's three inches by five inches. He'd come back a week later and say, hey, the card's still there. Hey, it's great. Not, is it okay if I put this sign here? And he's like 70 to 80% of the people would then let him put the sign there as opposed to just walking up to somebody and being like, hey, can I put this big sign in your yard? Most of them would just not do it. So he kind of saw this method of this like incremental way of getting people to adopt and kind of, you've already taken that first step. Can we take this bigger step now? You know, I'm the kind of person you can count on. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of approached that teaching method the same way. Here's a tiny little nugget that might help you right now. And then you want to learn more about it? Click this. You want to learn more about that? Watch this video. Sales 101, right? Getting him to say yes. That's right. And But here's one other interesting thing. At the same time, there's some specific resources that the company needed to provide for design thinking to be successful. So during the empathy phase, for example, a lot of our employees wanted to record customers, either with a video camera or some kind of recording device or pads of paper. And I was working at the same time with HR and facilities to make sure that those types of products, post-its, for the love of God, post-its and dry erase markers, all of the kind of supplies that you needed to make the design thinking process successful was in the corporate catalog, you know, was, was completely available to the employees. In the beginning at SAP, we're like, grab a video camera, grab a still camera, go out and talk to your customers. People would come back and be like, we don't have access to that kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah, right. So it's important to kind of do your work behind the scenes to make what they're going to need successful while they're also out there trying to do it. I love that. I want to reiterate this tactic. Incremental fusion of design thinking is what I'm calling it. Because I, I love yeah, how yeah. you start with something small, right? And then you get the buy-in and you have that aligned with what their their outcomes are going to be, what you know they are. And then you just continue to essentially build rapport of this idea and then have that fusion continue to gain momentum as it gets those successes. Yep. That's that's a great a great takeaway there, Jason. Is there anything else that we hadn't covered in this conversation so far that you'd love to leave our listeners with? I think there, there's a couple of things is that the coming technology now is things like artificial intelligence, virtual reality. These all may feel to some people like uncomfortable areas that you have to venture into, that you have to explore into. But there is honestly, there is nothing out there whether your company, you know, makes a toothbrush or virtual reality headsets or sheds or tractors or beef jerky. There's nothing out there that this design thinking type process can't help innovate on and make better. And so I don't want people to walk away thinking that, well, this is for technology only, or this is for programmers only, or because the word design is in there, it's for the graphic designers. It's design with a capital Z. And it sounds like I said Z, I meant D. (laughs) (laughs) And 
if you just look around you in the world, there's nothing out there, uh, again, like I said, that's not been created by a human except things from nature. And that means that when you see problems in the world, you can fix those problems. You can entrepreneurially put your own company together in your own com- in the own company that you work for. You can raise your hand, but there's a lot of problems out there in the world. And one of the fastest and easiest ways to solve and innovate on those problems is design thinking. You don't have to go to school for it. You don't have to learn anything special. You just have to face the problem a new way and walk through this path. You can Google design thinking, IDEO or D school Stanford, and just look at these charts online. And, and all of a sudden you can become extremely valuable in your ability to extrapolate new ways and new ways of thinking about problems that need to be solved in the world. And Jason, is there a cool thing that you're working on right now that you want everyone to, to check out? No, I, I, I really, unfortunately, all the stuff and everyone I think knows this when you work for a company it's mm-hmm. owned by the company. And so there's, mm-hmm. there's nothing specific. I mean, there's, there's highlights through my career. I used to work on kind of film called Willow, you know, and that was rotoscoping and video games and Val Kilmer. And this is, we're talking in like the late eighties. And then I worked on a program called director from Macromedia and they ended up doing flash and things like this. And but right now, I, can, I can't specifically say we're doing this for so-and-so, but I can mm-hmm. tell you that there's a lot of things that are very important to us, and they are things like virtual reality, augmented reality. There's something that we're <clears throat> paying a lot of attention to, which is a digital twin, which makes a lot of sense if you look at somebody like General Electric, who doesn't want you to stick your hands in a jet engine while you're trying to fix it but maybe have a virtual reality digital twin projected on it that tells you exactly what to do. So using computers to augment humans in different ways is really the forefront of, of kind of the future. It doesn't matter what someone does. They could be a violinist, a ballerina, a mechanic, but if you can kind of interface that with technology, and that's kind of the area that I like to explore and spend a lot of time on, how can you interface that with VR? How can you interface that with AR? That little cusp of bridging those two things together is where kind of the next wave of kind of innovation gets sparked from and where I like to spend a lot of my time. Yeah, I definitely agree. That's the cutting edge. Where would you advise we go so that we can keep tabs on this this progress and follow you guys? I mean, infosys.com is our, is our main hub. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think that Infosys in per se is the answer to everything. And so if you really want to, as an individual, to kind of embody this, I say just broad brush yourself out there with design thinking. The hub of design thinking is IDEO and the Stanford D School. Those kind of places, they really have some fun and creative things that you can find. And and I've, I've got a whole plethora of websites that I just cycle through on a regular basis for inspiration. But unfortunately, Infosys is a client-based company, just like IDEO. Mm-hmm. There's probably no one at IDEO that would tell you about anything that they worked on. You know, And they, mm-hmm. when I worked there, we labeled projects black, green, or red. Black is no one talks about anything, not even to your neighbor. Green was you can tell everyone, even your spouse. And it's kind of the same way with these client corporations. Well, I would love to dig into some of these resources that you just mentioned. And this Friday... During our rapid fire round, we're going to dig into those. 
Well, Jason, thanks so much uh, for spending some time with us today. It was great just to get your perspective on design thinking and really what goes into it from one of the thought leaders out there, as well as getting the tactic of, of how you can incrementally fuse this design thinking into your organization. So I think that from that perspective and these tactics, it will really help us to put these processes in place that will enable us to, to get to even more effective mobile experiences. So thanks again uh, for the time, Jason. It was a pleasure to have you on. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you for listening. For additional resources on how to increase sales and performance with your mobile experiences, head over to www.emergemobilefirst.com and select the Get Free Resources button there at the top and gain instant exclusive access to tools and resources from all of our guests aggregated into one single place just for you. Now, I'm looking forward to digging in with my next guest, but until next time, think mobile first.